from our epistle reading, that water is a picture of baptism, which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clean conscience. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Water is water's primal. It's primordial even. It's so simple, uh, so basic, and, and yet so foundational to life. Growing up where I did in, in Southern California, it, it always seemed that we were in a drought. Water was in short supply as it was diverted from the Colorado River and the Sierra Nevada Mountains to the metropolis of Los Angeles, where I was. Uh, local cities had only specific days in which you could water your, your lawn. Daily showering was discouraged. We were taught to wash our hands by turning off the water in between soaping up. Water consumption was like discouraged, even to the point of where I felt just a tinge of guilt swallowing a big glass of water after playing outside in the hot. Water is life, and that was seemingly uh, in short supply. Other parts of the country or the world have had the opposite relationship with hydro extremes. Too much water. Basement sump pumps breaking down just when you need them most. Rivers overflowing their banks. And even more extreme would be typhoons or tidal waves or hurricanes that are no discriminator between a collapsed building, an upturned car, or a human body. Water is life, but it can also be death. How apt then a sign to describe the Christian experience. We're put in mind of the death-bringing nature of water in our Old Testament lesson this morning, coming on the heels of that famous story of Noah and the Great Flood. Here, water was clearly death. Genesis 7 describes, All the underground waters erupted from the earth, and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth. All the living things on earth died, birds, wild animals, small animals, and all the people. Everything that breathed and lived on the dry land died. All were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him on the boat. The story of Noah is a story of death. All were destroyed, but it's also a story of life. The people who survived were Noah and those with him. In this regard, we, we might say that the flood narrative is kind of, a, kind of a birth narrative, a rebirth or recreation story. If you recall the opening passages, opening verses of Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, the, the spirit is described as hovering over the waters. Creation occurs when the dry land is separated from the waters and plants and animals and humans are created. Life is, is brought forth from that foreboding abyss of nothingness. And then God, later in Genesis 1, tells the humans to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. Humans then are charged with bringing forth more life by cultivating the land and by reproducing themselves. The, the human vocation is to extend God's creativity across the face of the earth. And so too, in fact, does God tell Noah, a second Adam of sorts, to do likewise in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 9. 
after the floodwaters had receded, after the dove had hovered over the waters and given indication that once again dry land had been separated from the waters. Chapter 9, verse 1 says this, Then God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Once again, humans are charged with extending God's dominion over the habitable world. The waters of the flood are death, but they're also new life, rebirth, and recreation. Our reading this morning picks up the story here. In conjunction with this instruction to refill the earth, God makes a covenant with Noah and his family, a covenant to never again bring waters to be the agent of death for all living creatures. God says, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and all the animals that were on the boat with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. Water had been the sign of death, a bringer of death, but now also water becomes a sign of life and the rainbow that forms when water hangs in the air and sunlight hits it just right. That's to be a reminder of this eternal covenant that God had made with every living creature, that, that he would no longer bring destruction, but actually he would bring life. Water means death, but water also means life. And in fact, these waters of the flood are, are reimagined, re-symbolized, to become a foreshadowing of a new life, a new creation, that baptism brings to all those who are followers of Christ. We were thinking this uh, past year in our adult education class, our, our catechesis class, about, the, about figural reading in, in Scripture, figural reading of Scripture in, in the Anglican tradition. Figural reading is, among other things, the practice of going through the literal meaning of Scripture to find a deeper spiritual meaning to the words on the page. And in fact, we have license to do this because Scripture itself does it, in fact. And no more clearly than what we heard in our epistle reading from 1 Peter 3, where St. Peter links the flood narrative to Christian baptism. So here then is a figural read of Noah's water ordeal. You and I, each of us, the core of who we are, are like the world found in Genesis 6. Genesis 6 says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Like Peter says, we're in need of more than a simple washing to remove dirt from our bodies. We're actually in need of death. Like the floodwaters, the waters of baptism are a kind of death. St. Paul says that in baptism we are buried with Christ into his death. All the wickedness and vice, the sin, the self-focus, all that is drowned, swallowed up by the floodwaters that pour over us in baptism. Following Christ, joining ourselves to him, joins us to his death, where he puts to death, where he kills the sin that separates, it, separates us from God and separates us from the life that God intends for us. The waters of baptism are death. But these waters are also life. The wickedness and the sin that's drowned away gives birth to our new selves, our true selves, the selves that we can be when living a new life with Christ. We are buried with Christ in baptism so we can be raised from death to life with Christ in his resurrection. 
This life is a new life, a rebirth, a recreation of sorts. Like Paul says elsewhere, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Like the paradox of water, we, we learn that when we die to ourselves, we become more fully alive than we could ever have imagined. Like Jesus says, whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. And then, like Noah, at baptism, we are re-given the divine call to be fruitful and multiply. Not multiplying wickedness and sin, but multiplying life and creativity in the light of Christ into the world that God has given to us. So what's then a, a, the moral to this figural reading of the flood as a type of baptism? I think there might be a few morals. Here's one. Christianity demands your total allegiance. Following Christ is a totalizing call. It's so extreme, so comprehensive, that those parts of you, those aspects of your life that are not in alignment with Christ, need to be killed. They need to be drowned. There's no part of us that's somehow exempt from the demands of God. The waters of baptism are death because they seek to kill any and all aspects of us that are not completely dedicated to God. Water is death. But of course the converse is true as well. The waters of baptism are life. They are the nourishment for a new life, the primordial basis to live out as new creation. And this, I think, is the message of the exhortation, which we read here at the beginning of the service. While it's a warning, it's also an invitation. We might be inclined to focus in on the warning part, judge yourself lest you be judged, or if you unworthily receive Holy Communion, you'll increase your own condemnation. That's true. That's just scripture. But let's not forget the invitation part, too. The response to the warning isn't, well, I'll work harder, or I'm just never going to be worthy. Rather, the response to the warning is, there's help for you. And the help comes in the fact that actually none of us is worthy of God, but Christ's death has made us children of God and has exalted us to the everlasting life that he's promised for us. And we only have to receive it. God told Noah to build an ark. He didn't say, go swim. Evangelical joke for you. <laughs> in baptism, you didn't have to do anything. God did something to you. So here we're, we're warned of our sins. We are reminded of the need we continually have to put sin to death and to live into the new life in Christ. But the invitation is that, is that those who are in Christ can do so. The message of Christ is death and life. That The meaning of baptism is death and life. You can die to yourselves and become newly alive in Christ, reborn and recreated to be as you were always meant to be. But still, we don't ought to forget the warning. The warning is actually another invitation. It's an invitation in this season to probe into our lives and to raise our own awareness of ourselves. What, what areas of your life might not at present be in total alignment with God's desire for you? Are there pockets or aspects of your daily or, or weekly lives that have not yet died and been reborn into a new life? Where does this cleansing bath of the Holy Spirit's work need to reach into your life today? I think one thing this season of Lent invites us into is a time of asking ourselves these questions. The invitation to Lent from Ash Wednesday um, says that this is a, a season of prayer and fasting and almsgiving, 
a season of reading and meditating on God's holy word, a season of self-examination that leads to repentance. Each, each instance of repentance, each act of confession, is a kind of death and resurrection. When we confess and repent, we're saying we want that sin to die, and we want instead to turn towards the new life in Christ. And in self-examination, we probe around in our lives, seeking those aspects that need to be held under water until they drown, so that we can be totally aligned with God. It's become something of our habit here at All Souls to, to offer the opportunity for confession on Good Friday. You can always confess your sins at any time. You can always come to Father Rob or myself to confess your sins privately and, as the exhortation says, to receive counsel, direction, and absolution. But perhaps you might just take this invitation, take this season, these 40 days to engage in some self-examination. 40 days like the duration of the flooding rains. 40 days like the duration of Christ's temptation. 40 days to pray and reflect and ask yourself hard questions about yourself. And then in the power of the Spirit, to repent. To come to confess on Good Friday, that, that day when we recall Christ's death, where he put sin to death. And in that way, you might come to our Easter celebration without any scruples or doubt of your worthiness, a worthiness not of your own, but of Christ that's been given to us through the waters of baptism. Amen.